I hope everyone was able to do their homework and read the two chapters of the book of Haggai. So our, our plan, um, just so you're apprised for today, um, is uh, first of all to do, of course, our background um, and context the way that we always do with each book. But today it's a little bit different because we're actually introducing not just Haggai, but also Zechariah because those two prophets uh, ministered exactly at the same time and, and uh, in the same place in Jerusalem, um, same situation. So um, we're doing Zechariah next week, but Zechariah is a different kind of book. And so before we close out tonight, I wanna spend about five minutes at the end walking through Zechariah, kind of giving a little overview so that you can, I hope fruitfully, make your way through it this week. So Zechariah is about 14 chapters. Your homework is a little more extensive, but I think you can do it. So this week, as you see there, Haggai. <clears throat> we don't know, uh, I know this sounds like a, a broken record, but we don't know much about Haggai. We're not told anything about him and anything that anyone says they know about Haggai is really largely based on speculation. So uh, there are some people who think he might have been a priest, some who think he might have been a farmer. There's really not enough evidence to make any decision. So we're just going to move on. He's, we know this, he's a prophet. <laughs> and the Lord spoke to him and through him. Background and dating. <clears throat> the, the key concept, uh, if we think about it, is the return of the exiles from uh, from Babylon. So <clears throat> I think last week we left us with the people being carried into captivity uh, with the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. And now we're sort of skipping ahead uh, to the time when the first of the exiles are allowed to return. Uh, <clears throat> so we are told that there was a a decree of Cyrus given in his first year, Cyrus, the king of Persia. And uh, in the Bible, it says in his first year, which, which is a bit confusing because at first glance, you might think that means his first year as the king of Persia, which would have been in 559 BC. But uh, most likely what it means by his first year is his first year after taking Babylon. So the first year uh, of his rule, rule over the Judeans, who were obviously uh, in the Babylonian Empire. So what we're really thinking about is this taking place around 538 BC, um, or at least the, the decree taking place. So he, he makes a decree to allow the people uh, of Israel to return, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a second, but <clears throat> you see on your slide, on the slide there, uh, in Isaiah 44, um, uh, Isaiah prophesied by name Cyrus as uh, a, a person who would allow the people to return uh, from exile. And he's even called a Messiah. That word Messiah is used, which means anointed one, but also has connotations of a savior of sorts. So, so Cyrus, when he, uh, when he took the throne of Persia, he instituted 
what we might call a, a, a foreign policy and a domestic policy of toleration and appeasement towards the, uh, the people of the kingdom, especially the people who had come from other uh, nations. And, uh, and he did so um, probably in order to be seen as a liberator of sorts. So when he actually entered uh, Babylon, entered the city, he was seen as someone who was liberating the people from incompetent rule. And uh, because he was instituting uh, policies of toleration for the captive peoples, what that meant was the people could worship their own gods, uh, which had not been the policy of either the Assyrians or uh, the Babylonians, as we've mentioned before. And so we can read about some of this on this uh well, if you knew cuneiform, you could read about it well, on a right. Cyrus cylinder. <laughs> right. When I say we can read about it, I mean Not us. Like other people. <laughs> <laughs> Experts can yes. read about it. Experts, but not us. But you could read about it in uh, the Bible in a couple of places. Or you can read it on my next slide. Oh, well, you could. This comes off of the Cyrus cylinder. And this just kind of gives you uh, <laughs> a a flavor for how Cyrus looked at this policy. So uh, as you see there, he says, I returned to the sacred cities on the other side of the Tigris, the sanctuaries of which had been ruins for a long time. And so he's talking about in general, his policy of allowing people to rebuild houses of worship, um, even if they weren't worshiping the gods of um, of Persia. And in fact, as you see there further down, furthermore, I resettled upon the command of Marduk, the great Lord, all the gods of Sumer and Akkad, whom Nabonidus has brought into Babylon to the anger of the Lord of the gods, unharmed in their former chapels, the places which make them happy. In other words, he's trying to keep all the different regional gods happy by allowing uh, their worship to take place, by restoring their, uh, their chapels or their temples, and, um, and even allowing the people to return. So in some sense, um, his allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple was part of a broader policy that was available to all peoples. But, but also in another sense, it was kind of special because he, he allowed greater latitude for the Jews in terms of returning to their homeland and actually uh, later rebuilding their walls. Um, but also he, at least there's a tradition, according to um, a Jewish historian that, that is contemporary with Jesus, a guy by the name of Josephus, you may have heard of him before, he says that Cyrus was moved to uh, make his decree to allow the Jews to return because he, was, uh, he had somebody reading Isaiah to him. And when he heard of this Cyrus who was going to be a, a, a savior figure for the Jews, um, he said, oh, well, this must be me. <laughs> so uh, at least that's the tradition. We don't know that for a fact. You, say something? Uh, you could also read... Um the decree of Cyrus uh, in the book of Ezra in chapter one. So what we're talking about is not in Haggai, it's still context for Haggai. Yeah. Okay. I thought I had that in there. Oh, I guess not. Okay. 
All right, so um, we thought it might be helpful to kind of lay out uh, some some dating, a uh, bit of a timeline for stages of return from exile. So um, we need to introduce <laughs> these two first folks, Zerubbabel and Joshua, who you'll see uh, mentioned in Ezra and in um, um, Nehemiah. 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 Okay. And, uh, um, and Haggai. These, Yes, and Zechariah. And Zechariah. Yes. Okay. So um, Zerubbabel Chronicles. is Zerubbabel is the Davidic, the Davidic uh, descendant who is um, leading the people uh, back to Jerusalem. And Joshua is a high priest. Um, he's descended from Aaron, so he's he's a Levite. Um, and the two of them um, uh, lead the people back. And the Bible says. Uh, in Ezra, that um, in chapter one of Ezra, that the leaders of Judah and Benjamin and the Levitical priests, whose spirit was stirred by God to go up and to build the house of God in Jerusalem, they returned. And um, at that point, in 538, so right after Cyrus gives his decree, about 42,000 were told uh, do make the journey back to Jerusalem. So 538. Um, in about I mean, so, so they're kind of resettling a little bit. Um, in about 536, the, oh, did you want to say something? Yeah. All right. Sorry. Okay. I was going to say something real quick. So when they first get to, uh, back to Judah, they sort of disperse to their, uh, their family lands, uh, right? So they're the cities that they came from, they disperse. But um, in that first year, they all come together to have a national uh, celebration. Um, in Jerusalem, they erect an altar to the Lord and they celebrate the Feast of Booths. And if you think of that, the Feast of Booths was, tabernacles. yeah, the, the, the Feast of Tabernacle, the Feast of Booths was a celebration that was meant to commemorate the wilderness wanderings and how God had led the Israelites through the wilderness and, you know, ultimately to the promised land. And uh, they commemorate this by sleeping in tents, basically, or, or portable, you know, uh, shelters uh, for a week. And um, it's appropriate for this context because you can imagine the people have, have, have been traveling uh, from Babylon back to Judea and they don't really have homes to just move into. So they're living in temporary shelters. Um, and we read about this in Ezra 3. So they do this right away uh, as soon as they get there. So they start out very strong. Um, and, and then within a couple of years, they, uh, as Stefano was going to say, they laid the foundation of the temple. And but everything was going along swell until um, opposition rose up among the neighboring um, peoples and the work was halted um, because the neighboring people opposed them and started to kind of sabotage their work by writing letters back to um, the Persian uh, overlords. So this we see in Ezra 4. Uh, so the building of the temple stopped for about 18 years. And this is the point at which Haggai and Zechariah enter with their prophetic work. So we're at 520 BC and um, Haggai and Zechariah are helping through their preaching um, and their, their messages given by the Lord to spur the people on to resume the work of building the temple, the whole purpose for which they had come back. And, um, and so the, the work resumes under their uh, prophetic leadership. 
And so just to lay out again a timeline, we, uh, we thought, you know, it's, you should see that it takes about five and a half years from the time they start building again until they have the temple uh, completed and can dedicate it. Um, and then just to give you sort of some context again, you can see where the Book of Esther fits into this timeline, um, Malachi, uh, Ezra, and then Nehemiah, when they come, um, they come and they uh, help rebuild the city itself. Because up to this point, primarily it's most of the city where the, the Jews had lived uh, was still in ruins and the, the walls of the city were still Humble rubble. That's right. Okay. So, so now we're at verse one of Haggai, <laughs> but uh, we're given a very specific reference in terms of dating. So it's in Darius's second year. Um, so as you see there, first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius. Uh, so that's uh, 520 BC. Um, we can also read of a proclamation of Darius uh, in Ezra 5, uh, on through six. So Stefana mentioned the, the people of the land were writing to the leaders of Persia and complaining. Uh, so between Cyrus and Darius, there was another uh, king who was a pretty weak ruler um, who's not mentioned in the Bible. And probably throughout his entire reign, there was no building going on. Uh, but uh, these people had, had complained and the Jews, uh, when they decide they want to start rebuilding, the, uh, the Persian governor of the region. So Zerubbabel is the Jewish governor. His, his role is to basically handle the political affairs of the Jews themselves. But over top of him, in terms of government structure, there was a regional governor who was a Persian who reported directly to the king. And he wrote to Darius and said, you know, was it true that these Jews were allowed to come back and rebuild? Is that why they're here? And Darius says, I don't know. Uh, let's do some I'll research. Yeah. Right, I'll look into it. So he, he orders some people to research, and they find Cyrus's proclamation. And so what, what we see Darius saying is Cyrus did indeed dec decree that the Judeans can return and rebuild. And so on top of not only am I going to allow them to do so, but uh, we need to tax all the local people here and make them pay for it. <laughs> so the people that had been re resisting the Jews for some time, and let's face it, the Jews also, the Judeans had also stopped working partly because they were concerned with their own homes and their own livelihood and establishing their farms as well, which we see in Haggai's own preaching. But he says they're going to pay for it. So again, this is part of that policy. Not only do the uh, Persians allow people to return and rebuild their houses of worship, but they actually pay for it out of the government coffers. So Haggai's message, what is Haggai's message? Well, there, there are some refrains that we see. One is he calls the people to account. He says, right, consider your ways. And like Stefano told me earlier today, it's like consider, consider. It's like a double consideration or uh, carefully consider your ways. You know, what have you been doing? And uh, you haven't been building. <laughs> Uh, so his primary message is you need to build the temple no matter what misgivings or fears you might have. Right? So this is what he says. Uh, and then 
And there, there's not a separate word for temple. It's the word house. And so yeah. because this word is repeated, there's a contrast that's constantly going on between God saying, you're taking care of your house, but my house is still in ruins. Is that, is that right? You know? And, um, and, and then, and it's really, you're building your, your, like your extravagant houses. Like they're not just shanties, you know, they've been there 18 years. They built them some pretty nice homes <laughs> and yet the temple sits in ruins. So, um, we see, uh, in further verses that, uh, their harvests have been, um, relatively unsuccessful. Uh, maybe they were thinking that they would come back and they were thinking of all the, uh, blessings of restoration um you know the exile is over they got back home and now there's just going to be prosperity and they're disappointed that their harvests um have not been uh maybe what they expected and Haggai indicates to them um from the lord that um because they had not completed the task of rebuilding the lord's house they hadn't been flourishing in the land and in some sense, they're still experiencing the kinds of curses that we see in Deuteronomy, those curses of futility, because their priorities are mistaken. So he said, you know, you planted a lot, but harvested little. You eat, but you're never satisfied. You drink, but never have enough. You know, things like that. So these are like futility curses. So um, their priorities have been wrong because they're just building their own houses and they are not building the house of God, uh, which will please him. And so I see this as Haggai calls them out that there's a, a problem of the heart, like a spiritual problem, right? And, and as you think about him having to come to the people after 18 years and say, hey, where's the temple, right? Why are you living in these nice homes and wondering why things aren't working out for you while God's temple is sitting as it, as it is? Um, and it, it recalled to my mind um, David's desire to build the temple. If you remember that, uh, that's in 2 Samuel 7, David says, you know, how can I sit in this nice palace while God only has a tent, <laughs> right? And of course, uh, Nathan says, well, do whatever God tells you to do. And then later, God comes to Nathan and says, no, I don't need a temple to live in because I'm, you know, God of the universe. I don't need a, a, a place. But uh, but it's David's heart that we see there, right? His, his love for God and his sense of something isn't right if I'm living in extravagance and God, uh, God's house is not. Um, and then by contrast, we see Solomon's, uh, in, in 1 Kings 6 and 7, you see contrasted the description of the temple of God and Solomon's palace. Um, what's striking about that when you look at it is you see that Solomon's personal palace, and let's say his first palace, is almost twice the size of, uh, of God's temple, and it took almost twice as long to build. And uh, interestingly, again, in both the case with David's discussion of the temple and in uh, Solomon, in the description of the temple with Solomon, in both cases, there's language about the covenant. With David, God says, you want to build me a house, but I'm going to build for you a house, right? I'm going to make your name great. And, uh, and, and so David then understands that uh, his line is going to be, it's his lineage that's going to be the fulfillment or how the fulfillment of God's covenant with uh, Abraham is going to be fulfilled. 
And then with Solomon, God says, if you do everything that I have commanded, if you honor me, then you can realize all the blessings of the covenant. You, as the leader, can be that, uh, that king that I promised to your father. And of course, he fails miserably. Uh, despite all his wisdom, he fails. And, and so it's a problem of the heart because, again, remember, the whole purpose of them returning wasn't for them to go back and build homes and reoccupy the land. That was secondary. The purpose was for them to build the house of God in Jerusalem, as I've given you there in Second Chronicles and Ezra 1 and also Ezra 1, 3, right? The, the decree of Cyrus said, whoever is moved among you, let him go to Jerusalem to rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. And so uh, Haggai calls them first to repentance. So the reaction of the people is um, a good thing that they um, repented, that they obeyed, they were moved. And um, I just want to bring out that there are three constituencies here. So there's the political leader, the religious leader, and the people. And God addresses all three of them. And... um, uh, when you look in verse 14, it says that the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, um, and he stirred up the spirit of the high priest Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. So it's the word ruach, which is spirit. Um, and this is important because then God talks about his own spirit. But um, uh these all were stirred up, uh, reassured of God's presence, encouraged to rebuild, and reassured of God's help at doing this. So um, remember Sunday when we did Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, you know, the workers labor in vain. So God is reassuring them that he is going to um, empower them to do this work. And so um, stirred up by the Lord, they worked on the house of their God, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord's um, Yahweh Sabaot, which is a title for God that's used frequently in both Haggai and in Zechariah. So uh, three weeks after this initial address by Haggai, uh, the people begin building. Probably they had to gather materials, <laughs> plans, and so forth. Um, I did, I did want to say just as a, this is sort of an aside, but, um, if you, you'll notice we're, we're making a lot of references to Ezra in particular in the the book of Ezra. If you were to go through and read the book of Ezra, you might get confused by Ezra four because of the way it talks about the Persian Kings, because they're not really listed in order. And what, what he's doing in Ezra four is he's describing all the opposition the Judeans faced when they returned and tried to rebuild. And so it began under Cyrus, and they're able to continue building the temple under Darius. And so he says that at the front end. But then after, then he begins talking about Ahasuerus and uh, Artaxerxes and the, the opposition that people found uh, or encountered uh, under their rule later. And, uh, and then it comes back to Darius as if Darius is later. But what he's doing is he's, uh, Ezra is summarizing opposition, then he's sort of picking back up at the end of uh, the end of the chapter uh, at 424. And then five one can, chapter 5, verse 1 continues on. So I just wanted to say that as an aside, because just so you're not confused. All right. And you sh- it would be a good idea to read Ezra um, between you know, today and next week, 
Um, on top of Zechariah. Yes, well, you can do it because <laughs> the Lord will stir your spirit and you will read it and you will get a lot out of it. And so Haggai um, too. Yes. And so in um, the following month, it says the seventh month, uh, God came again. So after uh, they'd been working for about a month, uh, God again speaks to all three constituencies. So it kind of sounds like discouragement is starting to set in. Okay. Um, and he, he asked, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem like nothing to you? So um, there were some who had seen it in, you know, 586 before um, they had been invaded. Um, they returned in 538. So it had been like 48 years. Um, and then until 520, like this point that we're talking about right now would be about 66 years. So it's conceivable. There were some people who um, had been exiled and had returned. And in their minds, they're comparing the task that they see in front of them to their recollection of Solomon's grand temple. Um, and um, there, there's just no way that this one that they're being tasked to build is ever going to rival Solomon's temple. Um, so uh, when Solomon built his temple, he built it with a huge labor force and with the partnership of the king of Tyre. Remember Hiram of Tyre. And with his resources, with a lot of money, it was the best of the best. And maybe this small group thought that there's just no way that we can compete. It's never going to be as good. And we read about this in Ezra 3, verses uh, 12 and 13, where you... The people, it's, it, you, hit, you get sort of two responses. The young people shout with joy when they uh, are laying, you know, the temple. And the, uh, the older people, when he asks this, who is left who saw the original temple, the older people uh, start crying. And, you know, I think, like Stefano said, there's, there's this aspect of sorrow because they know this temple that they're building is not going to measure up. I think there's also an element uh, in their weeping of sorrow because they know why the temple is no longer there, the Temple of Solomon, I mean, and why they had been carried into captivity. So there's a sense of weeping over the sin of the people uh, that, that the people had. And then there's also, I think, a, an element of weeping with joy. So you have this mixed, you know, the, the complex mix of emotions of people where they uh, you know, are broken over the sin that led to the destruction. It's like the rubble is a reminder. Um, there's a bit of, uh, of fear that they're not going to be able to measure up to the task. And that's what Haggai wants to encourage them. About. And there's also joy that they're back in the land now with the opportunity to restore the temple. Um, and so in 2.4, like we said, Haggai's message to them is, uh, is this, or God's message to them through Haggai is, I am with you, uh, take courage, right? Despite the opposition, despite the challenges, despite the material, you know, the material uh, problems or challenges, I'm with you, take courage. So if I could just expound on that a, a tiny bit. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, again, he addresses all three constituencies. So three times he says, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua, high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land. This is what the Lord declares. So he tells them, be strong. 
them, right? The second thing he tells them. Which is the same thing Joshua told the people before they went into the promised land. Just Okay. Just right off the top yeah, of my head. Yeah, so there. like think, think in terms of Exodus as well and, you know, kind of what was happening. So they they'd celebrated, you know, the Feast of Booths. And so they're kind of in, in that rhythm now. So God says, be strong to everybody. The second thing he says is work, okay? Work hard. Um, not just Zerubbabel to work or Joshua to work, but everybody work together. Um, the third thing he says is, I am with you. So God reminds them that the promise of the covenant that he made to them uh, when they came out of Egypt, it, it still stands. Literally, it says there in um, verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you, right? The promise that I made to you, the word that I covenanted with you. And um, he promises that his spirit is with them. My spirit, my ruach remains with you and among you. So it's a reminder um, of the, uh, uh, the Exodus time, the wilderness wandering time when God's spirit was among them. It reminds them of um, the uh, uh, smoke, um, the, the cloud of smoke, the cloud of fire that symbolized God, God's presence with them and among them. And he says, uh, lastly, he says, don't fear. So it's a, it's a good little uh, sermon here, a motivational sermon by Haggai. And then um, in order that they will not fear, God reminds them of his great power and of um, God's great vision for the temple and what's going to come in the future which John will enlighten us on, right? Yes. So, right. <laughs> so just as God can uh, bring them through the wilderness, he can protect them against opposition. And of course, uh, he can do the same for us. And just as they're playing a pivotal role in God's plan, so can we. And coming out of his description, though, of the Exodus, his reminding them of the Exodus, he then turns to a vision of the end, sort of this, this broader vision um, uh, of uh, cataclysm. He talks about shaking the earth and the heaven and the waters and so forth. So there's this, this great shaking of the nations. And uh, the emphasis in that, in that section in 6 through 9 is on him shaking the people to bring wealth to Jerusalem for the building of the temple. And I think this has, as you see there, a threefold meaning, or uh, it alludes to three things. So it has an immediate context, right? Just like Cyrus had said that the inhabitants must provide silver and materials for the building. That's in Ezra 1.4, and we, we said this before. Uh, and, of course, we also mentioned that Persia itself, out of their government coffers, helped finance the rebuilding of the temple. So there's an immediate context in which the pagan nations and the pagan peoples of the land are going to pay for the temple, right? So, so God can make that happen. Secondly, there's a past reference. Um, again, recall the Exodus, you know, thinking about the Exodus. What happened as the Israelites were leaving Egypt? The Egyptians were throwing gold and silver and, you know, jewelry at them, uh, right? Giving them wealth as they were departing, um, which is shocking. Why would they do that? But that's, uh, they were moved by God to do that. And so there's an immediate context, a past context, and then there's a future fulfillment. And uh, here, I think it speaks to how 
this is sort of the vision of how all people uh, will come to Jerusalem to pay homage to the Lord, whether willingly or not, right? Some will do it by force. Others will do it because they want to come and worship the Lord and uh, in spirit and in truth. Because again, uh, uh, Jerusalem will be where all peoples will come uh, and follow the Lord. And so uh, this eschatological vision includes all three. And it ends with peace. And it's the word shalom, which I know a lot of you know, um, that all will find peace uh, given by the Lord when the Lord reigns from uh, Jerusalem. And of course, that is, again, a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. All peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And we know that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, right, with the the, uh, the bringing in of the Gentiles and the Jews into one new humanity. Um, but in this case, right, the, the imagery is not quite that clear. Well, then Haggai uh, engages in some rabbinic discussion with the Levitical priests, asking questions about ceremonial cleanliness. Uh, and so he asks first, if something holy comes into contact with something regular or something profane, uh, if it will make it holy? And the answer is no, it won't. But second, if something is unclean and it comes in contact uh, with something that is clean, will it pl pollute that which is clean? And the answer is yes. And that's in uh, verses uh, 10 through 13. And Haggai uses this discussion of clean and unclean uh, to remind the people of God's judgment upon them as a call to repentance, right? Remember, they're currently, they've currently been experiencing the judgment of God. They have come back from exile because they had been under the judgment of God. And so he's calling them to repentance, a call to turn from their sinful attitudes, right? And like we pointed out before, the attitudes which precluded or was preventing them from working on the Lord's temple as they were supposed to. And so he frames this in terms of grain and wine, but I think it's clearly a reference to their attitudes. And he proclaims that if they will dedicate themselves to the Lord fully, he says, I, that is God, will bless you in, uh, in verse 19. He says uh, this, uh, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree, it has not borne fruit. Yet from this day on, I will bless you. So he says, even though you've been under judgment, now because of your obedience, because of your faithfulness, I will bless you. It's, it's kind of like because of their sinful attitude, everything that they do for the Lord or um, uh, you know, maybe the offerings that they bring or what, what they're doing for the Lord, it's like it's defiled you know, God doesn't um, accept it because their attitude is wrong. So, you know, their attitude sort of defiles everything that they think that they're doing well for the Lord. Yeah, I mean, and again, in a certain sense, their returning was a pledge to build the temple, right? I mean, he said, anyone who's moved that wants to go back and build the temple can go. Well, that's what they went back for, and that's what they were supposed to do. So in 20 to the end, chapter 2, verse 20 to the end of the book, Haggai offers a word of encouragement to Zerubbabel by reference to this final vision, this end, the end vision. 
So again, he comes back to this idea of God shaking the heavens and the earth. And ultimately, God is going to overthrow uh, the godless kingdom. And he reminds Zerubbabel that God is in control. Uh, he has reference to overthrowing chariots. This speaks to God's providence over all the nations, even the greatest world powers. Uh, I think it's an allusion to the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, you know, the current world power, and any other world power that might arise. God has power over all of them. And just as God was able to use uh, these world powers to judge his people, i.e. remember Habakkuk, for example, and just as he was able to move Darius to pay for the temple reconstruction, he says, so also, God says, I can protect the Judeans from the mi relatively minor opposition they're facing now. But I think it's also important to, to recognize that in Haggai's vision, Zerubbabel stands as an exemplar, like as an example of the ideal political leader who trusts in the Lord and seeks to uh, establish Jerusalem as the center of worldwide worship of Yahweh, of the, of the true God. Um, so ultimately, God will judge the nations uh, and this is what the writer of Hebrews, uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews picks up. So Haggai shares a vision of the end where God will establish his kingdom. And the writer of Hebrews says, as Christians, we have inherited a kingdom which cannot be shaken, uh, an eternal inheritance. And so the proper response for us is the same as that of Zerubbabel and, of course, the high priest Joshua and what Haggai was seeking to elicit, what God was seeking to elicit through Haggai and through Zechariah in the people. And that is uh, one of repentance, an attitude of repentance, of reverence, of thanksgiving, and of praise, and of service. So, wait, what's our next slide? Okay. All right. Um, I want to make just a uh, quick application. I'm, I'm good at the teaching and not so good at application, but um, I, I think that there is a pretty good um, application here for our church. Um, um, I, I might be wrong about this, but um, can, can you all see this here? I got this in the mail last week from the church and the building uh, fund. I might, I might be wrong, but I think there's a building project going on or uh, some, <laughs> some kind of project going on. Chris didn't put me up to this, by the way, just so you know, it's straight like from the Lord, basically from Haggai from 2,500 years ago. But, you know, I just want to say to you that, um, I think Haggai could encourage us to, to, uh, you know, continue on with this task. You know, if it's something that the Lord has stirred up in the hearts of your, our uh, pastor and staff and congregation, that um, we should press forward. You know, I think the Lord says, you know, be strong, Chris Jones, be strong, Meadowbrook staff, be uh, strong, all you people, congregants of Meadowbrook Baptist Church, be strong and work work together. You can't just each do it alone. The staff can't do it alone. Um, God says, I am with you. 
right? And, and uh, the promise of God's um, covenant with us, the promise of his spirit uh, remains with us and, and in us. And um, uh, do not fear. Uh, one other thing that we didn't really mention about uh, where God says the silver and the gold belong to me. I think what God is saying to the people is that God is not limited by a lack of resources. So, you know, we need to give um, and, and give faithfully and sacrificially, but God is not limited by um, a lack of resources. All the gold and silver, all the world is his. He can shake it down and, and shake the resources that we need. He can bring it to pass. I also want to say that um, God's church is not even just about brick and mortar, as of course we know. Um, while, just while we've been with Meadowbrook um, since March, y'all have been building a staff and you've added, you're getting ready to add the third new person to your church leadership staff. And God is building your church, but that staff can't do it alone. So, you know, um, be strong, Chris and staff and new staff and all the, the people. Um, so we all need to work together to grow the church through the mission of God and through the spread of the gospel. And it goes far beyond just Meadowbrook Baptist Church and our, our local surroundings, that it, it goes into all the world um, by the leading of God's spirit. So I just want to let Haggai uh, encourage us in that way. And again, nobody put me up to this. <laughs> And I think I think we as a staff can say thank you to the congregation for stepping yeah. up during this uh, unprecedented time, where uh, where we're not able to meet fully in person as as we had, and uh, have just recently begun in worship. And uh, we know that many of you have stepped up, have called folks, have uh, been, been ready to help out in any way that needs, uh, as needs arise. And, uh, we appreciate that as a staff. All right. We need to move on. So, cause Stefan is going to walk us through, uh, Zechariah very quickly. Yeah. Last time I had time, this was about five minutes. So let's see if I so can don't do add that any, again. Yeah, no adding any extra. <laughs> so just flip through Zechariah as I'm talking. Okay. So Zechariah starts out with a call to repentance, to learn from the past. And then um, the rest of chapter one and all the way to the end of chapter six, there are these eight dream visions that come to Zechariah. So in various ways, these visions apply to the situation that we've been talking about um, with respect to the building of the temple. So um, I, I'll let you read the visions, but I just want to say, what's the point of each vision? All right. So with the first vision of the four horsemen on patrol. The point is that the world situation is stable, that God is patrolling, that's his job. God is watching over it and Jerusalem should just focus on rebuilding the temple and be comforted and encouraged that God will again prosper them. The second one, the horns and craftsmen, the point is that God will keep at bay the forces that once oppressed them. So again, they can press on to what he commissioned them to do. Third vision, the measuring line. Well, Jerusalem's walls are still down at this point. And so uh, the, the measuring line going around is just measuring where the wall is supposed to be. God says, I'm going to be their wall. He says their wall of fire, right? God's going to be their firewall. And uh, they will again be his portion 
in the Holy Land. That's a quote. There was portion in the Holy Land. A fourth vision, we see uh, Joshua, the high priest. Um, this will be an interesting one that we'll talk about next week. But the point is that he is fit to lead the nation spiritually because he is sanctified and cleansed by God. The fifth vision uh, focuses mostly on Zerubbabel. And the point is that Zerubbabel is a fitting leader um, in the task of building. He'll be strengthened by God and the completion of this building is guaranteed. It was begun by Zerubbabel's hands and God says it will be completed still by his hands. The sixth vision has to do with a humongous flying scroll. It's a little scary actually. But the point of it is that the people of the city will be purged of their sin by God's word. The scroll goes into their homes. They'll be purged by God's word convicting them. The seventh vision uh, is of a woman in a basket that represents wickedness. And the point is that the sin of the people is removed and taken away uh, to Babylon. Um, and we'll talk about that next week. And the eighth vision is, again, about the four horses, or I guess chariots. And the point is that God's presence by his spirit uh, is moving over all the earth. And so this section ends then with a crown made for Joshua, the high priest, who becomes kind of a messianic symbol of God's rule and reign from his temple, which must be rebuilt. So there's a final call or encouragement to rebuild. Right, so these are the visions. That's the first half of the book. In the next half of the book, we've got two chapters that seem to go together. So Zechariah 7 and 8. Did you want to say something? No, go. Okay. 7 and 8. Um, uh, some indications about proper fasting and religious celebrations. And then from Zechariah 9 through 14, we have a mix of encouraging prophecies and oracles. And in, the, in these oracles, there are lots and lots of messianic references that you should be able to identify. And I really suggest to you that as you read through, read it out loud. Because as you hear yourself reading, you'll kind of recognize uh, one of these prophecies as you come across it, rather than just sort of passing over it with your eyes. So in chapter nine, we have oracles against the Canaanites, but also the Palm Sunday prophecy about the king coming on the donkey. In chapter 10, we have a prophecy against, um, uh, against idolatry and also about the protection and restoration of Judah, and then also of covenant blessings restored. Um, in chapter 11, we have some sign acts and also the prophecy about the 30 pieces of silver. In 12, we have military security promised to Judah and also the prophecy about seeing the one in whom they have pierced. In um, chapter 13, we have the prophecy of a fountain uh, opening up in Jerusalem, a fountain that washes away sin and also prophecy about the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering. And then finally, chapter 14, a huge chapter, is about the day of the Lord and the return of God to defend his people and to rule forever from Jerusalem. So I hope that will help you make your way through the book. So, so as we, next week is going to be a bit of a whirlwind because as we talk through all of these interesting prophecies, we have to think about it in its own context, uh, in the, the rebuilding of the temple uh, after its destruction. We have to think about how it relates to the, the coming of Christ, the Messiah, 
And then a, a lot of it also refers to the far future at the, the final judgment and the day of the Lord at the end of this age. And uh, we'll see some comparisons with some of the things written about in the book of Revelation. So there's a lot of, a lot of things to think about. And I would say as you, as you read this, sort of keep in mind that, uh, that prophetic perspective we talked about several weeks ago, where the prophet sees the immediate, but there's also, this, there's also a, a, a further fulfillment and maybe even a further fulfillment. You know? So it's multiple fulfillments uh, or an initial fulfillment, a more full fulfillment, and then a final complete fulfillment of some of these prophecies. And they'll have that sort of a relationship over uh, over time, over history. Um, well, we'll try and lay some of that out. We won't. We probably won't answer every single question, but uh, that's what we're going to try and do next week. And uh, so, with that, I think we're done. If you have any questions, you can email Stefana. No. <laughs> right there, uh, and I think. I think since we're right, we're a little bit over time tonight, I'll ask uh, Pastor Chris if he'd close us in prayer. Well, thank you guys very much. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we thank you for um, your goodness and your grace. Uh, Lord, we thank you for your word. Your word is rich for your story, for it is true. Uh, Lord, increase our faith in you. Father, give us a hunger to know you through your word. Lord, guide us as we go throughout this evening and the coming days. Lord, may each of us be stirred to spend time with you. Speak to us, guide us, fill us, use us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.